0: Thank you, Chris. Thank you, uh, Substance Church. It, is, it really is an honor and a blessing and a privilege to be here with you. It's always uh, with such hospitality that we are greeted with. We've been, we've, been able to, we've been fortunate enough to be with you once before, and, uh, and it just spills over. And so we're grateful, and, uh, and, we're, and we're happy to be here and, and blessed. Um, if you would, uh, would you take out your Bibles? We're going to be in the book of Titus this morning. In the book of Titus, towards the end of your Bible there, we're going to be in chapter 3. I don't know how we normally do it here, but uh, if you wouldn't mind, let's, let's stand as we read God's Word this morning. I don't know if that's a proper procedure around here or not, but um, I like to stand and, and engage in God's Word. Uh, so let's just read, uh, we're going to be in, Ch- in Titus chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 3 this morning. For we ourselves By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. This is God's word. Thank you, You may be seated. Man, wow, what an amazing, what an amazing section of scripture this morning that we get to dive into. Uh, this is this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. I'm sure many of us are familiar. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to uh, one of his co-laborers, Titus, in the church at Crete, um, just south of, of what is currently Italy right now. Um, and, and as we see with many of Paul's letters, as we see with Paul and how he generally tends to write his letters, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh He 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 writes his letters in sort of a certain way. He 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 he's often telling the churches that he's writing to what they are to be doing. Oftentimes, you see him giving instructions to the churches that he is writing to, saying, "This is how you are to live your life. This is the way. This is what it looks like to be a a believer in this new fledgling uh, church that that God is raising up." And Paul's giving instructions, but we never see Paul. Through, again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we never see Him giving these new churches instructions on how to behave without also reminding them and explicitly declaring to them the good news of who they are in light of the gospel that has changed them and created them and formed them. So he never just writes them a list of how-tos. He never says, here's 25 things that you need to know to be the best Christian that you can be. And if you do all these 25 things, you guys are gonna be in good shape. He doesn't just hand them these lists. He, he always provides them with the greater context, which is, hey, remember not just what you are to do, but primarily, first and foremost, remember... Who you are. Who you are. That's the the primary thing that he wants to communicate to them. Because he understands how it works. The gospel first and foremost establishes a new identity before it gives a list of commands. And this is the way that God himself has orchestrated things from the very beginning of time. From the creation of Adam and Eve. All the way throughout of recorded history that we have through God's word, we see God operating in this way. He never gives a command without first giving the grace to be able to complete and perform that command. And it's no different than what we, than what we see right here in the book of Titus. He's writing to Titus and he's, he's, he's telling him, he's, he's giving him instructions about, about establishing the leadership in the church and what it should look like and, and what these men should look like and what these people who are going to be leading the church of God how should they live their lives? What it should be like? And he's, and he's giving instructions on how to do things and he, and he stops right in the middle of it and he says, but we can't forget this. And this is our text today. He's establishing this. He's, he's never, he never gives the imperatives of what to do without giving the indicatives of what God has already done. He knows that simply giving them a list of commands is, is going to fall short in producing what he ultimately wants to see in them. We see that right here in this text. Paul is describing, in verse 3, he starts by describing and reminding them. He says, this is what you were like before. And we can't forget that. He says, remember what you were like before you came to know this grace. Before this grace invaded your life. Before Christ came and stepped in. Remember what it was like before that. And, and when he starts in verse three, he, he, he doesn't just say, "Remember what you were like. Remember what you were like? No, he's, what does he say? He says, "Remember what we were like." He says, "For we ourselves." Paul's putting him in the, he's putting himself in the same category, and he's saying that all every one of them are included in this, for we ourselves were once foolish. And we have to remember this. We have to remember that this, 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 there's no one that is left untouched and unscathed by what Paul is about to describe. There, there are no exclusions, there are no exceptions to what he's about ready to describe. And he goes on, he says, and, and this, is, this is important for us to remember that this is all of our natural state, that we are all natural born sinners. And in this in this natural born state goes all the way to the very core of who we are as people. And we must understand that this sinful nature that we have inherited it makes us both simultaneously helpless victims and willing participants. We are, we are victims in the sense that much we just read from Psalm 51 this morning. Psalm 51 tells us that we are conceived in iniquity. From the moment of our conception, from the moment that God sparks life into us, we are conceived in sin and in iniquity that is passed down from us from our first father, Adam. And it, there's, again, there's no exceptions to this rule. But at the same time, we see all throughout Scripture that we are willing and active participants because apart from Christ, we are all passionately and ferociously pursuing the sinful desires of our hearts. Paul quotes the Old Testament in saying there is no one who is righteous. No one seeks God. None of us. No no exceptions. And he's highlighting this reality. And verse three says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. These descriptions are as accurate as they are damning of us, correct? Correct. Foolish, right? He uses this word foolish. Psalm 14 says, it is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. This is what Paul is tapping into, this idea that the way in which we conduct our lives apart from the grace of Christ is a complete and utter denial of God in the way that he has revealed himself to be. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. We have a darkened Understanding of God in our sin. So whether that means we are confessing atheist who denies the very existence of God, or maybe that means we are a practical atheist who claims to believe in God but denies God through the actions of their life. Denying the Lordship of God. This is how Paul describes all of us apart from Christ. He says we are disobedient. We we rebel against authority. We rebel against all authority, including God's. We are disobedient people. It makes us rebellious to our core. We are led astray. Our our sinful nature makes us, it makes us very easy prey for all sorts of false teaching, all sorts of false ideas. The, the, the way that Ephesians 4 describes it is any, any false wind of doctrine that comes along, we are tossed to and fro. We are, we are desperately clinging for anything and everything except the one and true God. That's what we're like. We're led astray. We're easily led astray. He then goes on to say that we are we are slaves. We are slaves to to various passions and pleasures of our heart, think about a slave. A slave has no control. A slave has no ability in and of themselves to, to gain their freedom and to, to free themselves from their situation. They are in bondage. they are in bondage to their sin. Paul saying that we are, we are enslaved to the, to the distorted passions and desires of our life and we have no capacity in and of ourselves to free us from that bondage we are slaves to it, we are bound by it, we foolishly chase after our passions thinking that they're going to quench the thirst that we find in our hearts only to find that it's, that it's a broken cistern and an empty well he says that, that we want Past our days in malice and envy, hoping, hoping that bad things will happen to the people that we don't like, and hating when good things happen to the people that we pretend to like. Right? That's malice and envy. We don't, we don't want to see anyone succeed, even the people that we claim to love. We become envious and jealous. We want to see, of course, our enemies fail. But but in our distorted, sinful nature, we even want to see our so-called friends and loved ones. To an extent. And obviously, all of this combining together, it's going to bring about nothing but what? Hatred. We're going to hate one another, and we're going to be hated by one another. That's the only logical result here. The unregenerate life is one that is hopelessly curved in on itself. Hopelessly and helplessly, curving inward, like the, like the thorns of a rosebush, right? Just squelching and crushing inwardly. Friends, we, we can't forget the way that Paul describes us, the way that God describes us through Paul. When we are outside, when we have not been touched and changed by the grace of Christ, This is is all of us. And it's sobering. It is sobering. Charles Spurgeon, in in his sermon on this very text, he says it like this. He says, do not let me talk about these things this morning while you listen to me without feeling. I want you to be turning over the pages of your old life and joining with Paul and the rest of us in our sad confession of former pleasure and evil. So I hope that can be us this morning, as we, as we allow God's word to penetrate our hearts through the through the Spirit this morning. That we would that we would be turning over the pages of our hearts and of our lives, remembering the re, remembering the state that we were once in, and, and and it's it's helpful for even those of us maybe who would say, you know, I was. I became a Christian at a very young age. I was like five, six, seven years old. I came to know the Lord, great. So maybe, maybe what you need is to hear God tell you what you were like. Maybe it's not as fresh in your memory. Some of us maybe who came to know Christ later in life can go, yeah, I can point to the day and the moment and the minute. But others of us who go, you know, I've been, I can't remember a time when I wasn't a believer. This is all the more important for us, for God to say, this is what you're like apart from me. You have to trust and believe that this is what you would be like. And this is what the remnant of your sin still looks like in you. The residue that's left over. That I'm, that I'm still in the process of cleansing and washing and sanctifying out of you. So, so just because maybe we've been a Christian for a long time. And, we, and these memories of what it's like to be apart from Christ aren't as fresh. Embrace the word of God this morning and remember what God says you are like. Apart from grace. This is us to the fullest extent. Properly understanding our natural, sinful, helpless condition, church, friends, brothers, and sisters. Properly understanding this is the only way in which we can respond to those around us with compassion rather than contempt. The reason why we are so quick to respond with contempt with a lack of empathy, with a lack of compassion, with a a short fuse, right? Is because we've forgotten the grace of God that has been extended to us and how apart from that, we are on the same path. So we look at the world around us. How could we? How could we look at them with contempt? How could we look at them with a standoff, with a a stiff arm, with pulling away and withdrawing as if somehow we have... We have achieved something that they haven't. We're fooling ourselves, church. Fooling ourselves. So we see this pattern where Paul is reminding them. He's saying, this is what you were like. This is what I was like. This is what we are all like. And it's important for us to remember this as sobering and as hard as it can be to remember. So then the the next logical question then is, what makes it possible then for us to change? What is it that makes it possible for us to change this state? If this is all of our state, if this is what we were all like, what then is the difference? Do we just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm kind of tired of this. I'm kind of tired of this. I think I'm going to make a change. Right? Is, is this our willpower? did we finally, did we finally <laughs> fulfill our New Year's Eve re- resolutions? Is that what it is? Maybe that's the ticket. We just need better resolutions. Did we finally read the right self-help book? Is it CrossFit? Maybe that's maybe that actually is what it is. It might be. I've never tried it. Obviously. <laughs> you can suck. Right? Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Is that it? Is it CrossFit? Is it essential oils? I don't know. What is it? What is it that makes this change possible? Well, to, to look at this text in its proper context. We have to look a little bit before, and we see in verses 1 and 2 of this very same chapter, Paul is giving us sort of the contrast of verse 3. Verses 1 and 2 contrast very starkly with verse 3. Verse 1, it says, remind them. This is is Paul telling the leader, Titus, to, to remind the church, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient To be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all. You see the contrast there? You see how it's almost the exact opposite wording that is used in these verses? Paul's reminding them. and He's saying, this is the contrast. And when we read that, when we read this verse today, we should immediately... We should immediately feel the weight of verses 1 and 2. We should feel weight there. We should recognize immediately the ways in which we aren't living like that. A person who sees their shortcomings in verses 1 and 2 is a person who has eyes to see. A person who reads verses 1 and 2 and realizes the ways in which they are they're falling short is a person with eyes to see. The person who reads verses 1 and 2 and says, yeah, you know, I, I got to be honest. I, I feel pretty good about that. I feel like I'm kind of nailing those. I kind of feel like I have those down, to be honest. I, I mean, I hear, I, I hear you. But, I mean, as I'm reading through there, I mean, I'm submissive to my authorities I mean, as long as I'm being treated fairly, of course, but, you know, well, and as long as they align with my political views, then yes, of course I'm going to be submissive to my authorities, right? Be ready for any good works? Are you kidding me? I brought my neighbor's trash can up three times in a row. So, yeah, don't, you don't have to talk to me about being ready for good works. I got that down, right? I would never speak evil of someone to their face. That's not me. That's not me. I'm not going to do that. not quarreling. No, 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 no. I don't quarrel. Maybe with my wife a little, but that's it. Just some light quarreling. I'm gentle. I'm as gentle as they come, unless one of my kids misbehaves. Right? We're we're good at this, playing this game. Perfect courtesy to everyone, unless they cut in front of me in line when I'm driving. Right? To To the person who reads... Verses one and two, and, and you're going, wow, yeah, man, that's that's a person who has eyes to see, right? That's a person who's who's like, yeah, I, I see that. But the person who's looking at it and going, you know what, I'm, that's me, I got that. There's a big difference. The person who reads it and reacts this way, you may be in danger this morning. We may be in danger if that's our heart's position when we hear those words. We we may be in danger this morning. The person who reads it and feels like they have have nailed it is in just as much danger as the person who reads it and goes, yeah, I don't care about any of that. It's the same. It's the same heart. In just as much danger. Why? Because self-righteousness is unrighteousness. Self-righteousness is unrighteousness. Feeling like you have mastered God's commands on your own is just as wicked as not caring about them at all. And that's a hard word for us, church. It's a hard word for me this morning. Ephesians 2 summarizes this very well as saying, this kind of person is spiritually dead. The person that's described in verse 3, or the person who looks at verses 1 and 2 and says, yeah, I got that, no problem. That person is spiritually dead. That's a dead person. And dead people, dead people don't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm kind of sick of being dead. I'm tired of being dead. I'm going to be alive. That's silly, right? We wouldn't assume a dead person could do that. This is how, we're, this is how the person apart from Christ, whether in open and honest rebellion or self-deluded self-righteousness, this is how this person is being described as dead. Dead in their sins and trespasses. A dead person must have someone or something from the outside come and act upon them in order for life to be restored. And this brings us then to verse 4 in our text. This is where the good news comes in church. Verse 4 After Paul says, now don't forget who you are. Apart from Christ, don't forget who you are. This is what you're like. This is what I'm like. But then we see that word. But, I'm convinced that maybe the greatest word in all of scripture. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works, Done by us in righteousness. No, no. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. According to the hope of eternal life. This is what makes transformation possible. This is where our transformation comes from. This and only this. There is no other way by which we can be saved, church. There are no other options being discussed. This is it. When we see that precious phrase, but God, we who were once foolish and deceived and disobedient and enslaved... But God acts. He shows up. But God initiates. But God comes. But God humbles himself. But God pursues us. But God puts on flesh. But God. But God. Not but you, not but me, not but Chris, not but anybody else, but God. God. He saves us. This is grace. This is the very definition of grace. He saves us. And how does it say that he saves us? He saves us by the washing and the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this type of language, this type of language might make you think back. It's common language with the Bible, but, but it, it makes me think back to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, in chapter 36, he's talking about this idea of a new covenant, of a new birth, a new type of relationship. In Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, God makes a promise to his people and he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will sprinkle clean water on you, right? The washing. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the only way to transformation, church. We have a heart condition. Apart from Christ, we have a heart of stone. Unable to beat, unable to pump blood through our bodies. We are dead in our trespasses and our sins apart from him. But God, but God, but God, church, this is is what we're talking about. God comes and he removes the heart of stone. He replaces it with a heart of flesh. Jesus uses this type of language when he's talking to Nicodemus in in John chapter 3. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There has to be a total transformation. He's not talking about water of physical birth. He's not talking about water of baptism. None of those things save us. He's talking about the cleansing that happens when we are regenerated. When our heart of stone is turned to heart of flesh... This is the washing that happens. This is the washing that Jesus is talking about. It's the washing that Ezekiel is talking about. And it's the same washing that Paul is talking about in Titus. At the moment of our new birth, we are cleansed. We are washed. Our hearts are changed from stone to flesh. And we are justified before God. We are made right before him. What was was wrong in us has now been made right. Not by the works of righteousness that we have done, church. Not by the works of righteousness. Everything that stood between us and God, all of the filth, all of the deception, all the hatred, all the malice, all of it washed away. And here is where we see the beautiful work of the Trinity in our salvation. It's all laid out for us perfectly here. The Father plans and initiates. Not because of you, not because of me. The Father plans and initiates. Our salvation originates in the very heart and character of God himself. That's where our salvation comes from. That's where it originates. God didn't look down upon the earth and he was not moved by us. He was moved by himself, by his very character, by his very nature. It says that in in here. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, it's talking about God's character. Why did he move? Because he's good and he's loving and he's kind. Not because we were so great or special or we were were just about to figure it out. No. He moved because of who he was. He moved because of his character. He moved because of his identity. It's who he is. That's where our salvation originates from. He, He plans it. He initiates it. Nothing we could have ever done would have merited it. God acts not because we are good, but because he is good. He acts out of who he is. And so the father is the one who plans. The father initiates the work. And it is Jesus, the son, who is sent to accomplish the work of the father. Jesus comes and he puts on flesh. And he accomplishes for us on our behalf what we could never do he lives the life that we should have lived and he dies the death that we should have died and the wrath that we had earned and deserved was poured out on him and we now receive like 2 Corinthians 5:21 tells us so succinctly for our sake he the father Made him, the Son, to be sin. I think that's a key word for us to be sin. It's not like Jesus put our sin in a backpack and put it on his back. Jesus became our sin. He became our sin, the personification of our sin. We cannot overlook this reality. He made him, the Father made the Son to be sin. He knew no sin, he was perfect righteous. He knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see why those words are important? We don't just put on the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness. We're talking about identity here. We're talking about the very fabric of who we are. So if we're, say, if we're willing to say that our sin goes all the way down into the core, the very identity and fabric of who we are, then we're going to need something, a remedy, that goes just as deep and just as comprehensive, correct? Right. So we can't just bolt God's righteousness onto our lives. That is not sufficient, church. We need a total rehab, a total transformation. That's what we're talking about here. So the father plans this, he initiates this. The son accomplishes. He puts on flesh and he comes and he lives the life we couldn't. He was the savior that man needed and he was the man that God needed. He was the God that man needed, and he was the man that God needed. I'll hit you later maybe. But we can't we can't lose the identity piece, right, church? We can't lose the fact that we become. It's our new identity now. This is who we are. The righteousness of God in Christ is who we are. So now our lives are not based upon what we have done for God. Our lives are based upon what God has done for us in Christ. There's a huge distinction there. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, the message of the gospel is that the standard of the Christian life is unattainable. And that punishment for failing to live up to this standard is unescapable. But the good news is that Jesus not only lives up to the standard and fulfills the requirements of the Christian life, but he also pays the penalty for the ways in which we fall short. That's comprehensive. That's comprehensive. That's the the Savior that we require. And this is good news. This is why they call it good news. This is what the gospel, the gospel means good news. This regeneration happens because of God's mercy, of God's kindness, and is made possible through Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus is the physical appearance of the kindness and goodness of God. That's what it says in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Who's that talking about? That's Jesus. That's the goodness right there. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and is the Holy Spirit who applies and maintains our regeneration and our renewal. Because of who God is, He acts upon us through Christ and it is all made real and powerful and effective in and through us by the work of God's Holy Spirit. It's God's Spirit. It says it right there in verse five. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. As Paul later says, so that any of us could boast because you know that we would, right? Yeah, but you know, you saw what I did back there, right? You saw that little bit that I threw in. I mean, God did a lot. I got I mean, trust me. I thank you, God. I appreciate everything you did for me. But I mean, you guys saw stuff that I was doing too, right? Paul, that's that's our heart. That's that's what we would do. That's why God leaves no room for that. There's not even a little sliver of space for that. He says so that no one can boast. If you're going to boast in something, you're going to have to boast in the cross. That's it. According to His own mercy. By washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit of God. Whom he poured on, on us richly. Not stingily. Not greedy like, you oh, you get a little taste. You're just a little sample. No, it's, it's, his grace is what? It's sufficient. It's more than sufficient. It's beyond sufficient. It's poured out on us richly through the Holy Spirit in us. Overwhelming us. He's not in short supply. He's not gonna run out. We're not gonna reach the end. We're not gonna outsend God's grace. We're never gonna be beyond his grasp of redemption. We're never gonna be past that. He's never gonna grow tired of us. He's never gonna grow weary of forgiving and saving us. It's just not gonna happen. This very same power... This very same person, this Holy Spirit that now dwells in us and is given to us by our Father through the work of the Son and now dwells and lives in us because he's been poured out onto us by our Father. He lives in us and this very same power that lives in us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same exact thing. And you don't have like a junior varsity version. And I don't have like a JV freshman team Holy Spirit. It's not not what it is. It's the same power. It's the very same power that spoke and brought the world and the universe into existence. The very same thing. And this Holy Spirit that causes us to be regenerated and washed is the same Holy Spirit that empowers us and enables us to live the type of life that God expects of us. This is where our obedience comes from. This is it. This is what empowers and fuels and drives our ability now, which we do now have because we are no longer a slave to our passions and sins. We have the capacity now, because of the Holy Spirit in us, to say no. To say no, I'm not going to do that. I I don't have to give in to that passion. I don't have to give in to that desire. I don't have to, to go back to my old chains anymore. I have the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. That's been given to me by my Father. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is living in me. So yeah, I can say no to that. I have that capacity now. My heart has been changed from stone to flesh. So yes, God has given me that ability and that capacity now. Through the power of his Spirit, not by my own strength. Romans 8 traces it well in in verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's going to happen. He who began the good work is going to see it to completion. And this happens through the Spirit in and through us. It's going to happen. And this, brothers and sisters and friends, is what makes us heirs. This is what gives us the inheritance that we are promised. This is what makes us now family. Ephesians says that we are adopted into the very family of God. We are are given a new citizenship and we are brought into the very household of God. So, guess what? When we get God as our father, we get each other as brothers and sisters. And there is no opt-out clause. We are now co-heirs with Christ. That's, that's the reality that we live in. It's not, listen, there are a lot of metaphors in the Bible for the church and for Christians. You, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. We're not literally branches, right? we understand that. That's a metaphor. Sheep, you're not literally a sheep. That's a metaphor. Guess what? When the Bible says that we're family, that's not a metaphor, it just isn't. We are not like a family. We are a family. Listen, our, our family, our sonship, our adoption is only as metaphorical as Christ's work on the cross is for us. So if you want to say that this is like a family, then you can say that Jesus sort of like died for you on the cross. It's not a metaphor, church. This is who we are. This is our identity now. And so this is why Paul is saying, remind them to live this way. He's not saying, tell them to figure this out. He's saying, no, this is who they are. This is who Christ has made them. This is what Christ has purchased for them to be. They now have the Holy Spirit of God living in them. So remind them of what? Of what I'm like. Remind them of how I live. Remind them of how I interacted with them. Remind them of what I did on their behalf. How I handled them, how I cared for them, how I spoke to them, how I approached them. Remind them of that so that they can then live that way. Empowered by me to do it. God never gives us the imperative of what we are to do without first giving us the means to accomplish it. That's it, church, and that's good news. That's really good news. Who we are, in the same way that who God is resulted in what he did for us, the same is true about us now. Who we are in Christ produces As Ephesians 2 says, the good works which were prepared for us before even the foundations of the world. That's what God has for us. And he's made that possible through his work and not our own. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise you. We thank you for this work that you have done for us. We thank you that you have made it possible for us. You've given us now through your plan and through your purpose and through your predestination and election and, and power and through Christ's work, through his atoning sacrifice, through his perfect, sinless, flawless life, through his resurrection over death, conquering and, and killing the, the enemy's plan, God, destroying everything that he was trying to do, triumphing over death and evil and sin for us, God. And through you so richly, God, richly pouring out your spirit unto us and into your people, God. That you are now building together as a dwelling dwelling place for your spirit. That's what you've promised us. But God, we ask, God, that you would peel, continue to peel the scales off of our eyes. Continue to, to work this salvation in and through us as you have promised you would. So that we can work out of that salvation with fear and with trembling. Pursuing you and going after your heart. Because we can now. It's possible. But we need your help, God. So please, we love you and we praise you. And we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.